Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Uh, he only has one testicle. Yeah, it's true. He only, that's, that's, the proof is in the pudding, or in this case, the proof is in the one testicle. It was an accident. <laughs> This is the fifth episode in our Get Me Another When Harry Met Sally series, and today we'll be talking about two films where the protagonist finds themselves enmeshed in a web of deception. In addition, both happen to be set in the city of Chicago. First up today is 1995's While You Are Sleeping. working this weekend, Jerry. Lucy! Every day I go and I sit in a booth like a veal. I, I work every holiday. I go home to a cat. For Lucy, loneliness was a way of life. Joe Jr.'s still single. Yeah, it's shocker. But the moment she saw Peter, she became a believer in love at first sight. He was perfect. Then fate stepped in. Mister, there's a train Smoking. Now she's part of his life. He's in a coma. Oh, I was gonna marry him. Who's she? She's his fiance. No, no, no. Peter's engaged. She saved his life. Part of his family. Hey, sis. Where's my um? Lucy's uh, going to marry my brother Peter. What? I didn't mean for this to happen. I don't know what to do. Don't tell them a thing. Well, since they met you, they figure they have Peter back. They need you, Lucy. Just like you need them. Come on, everybody. And the grandmother, they just got this heart thing. She had three attacks already. Now you tell them now, and you might as well shoot grandma. That's right, you haven't met Jack yet. Welcome to the family. Oh, thank you. It's funny, my brother never mentioned you. Which one of the three studios was Peter's favorite? Curly. Curly, ha! He's everybody's favorite. Fact is, you're not really Peter's type. All right, whose type am I? I like blondes. You like brunettes. Can I say, Peter, I was never envious of anything that you had until now. Well, you have to tell me what to do. I like Jack. Pull the plug. You're sick. I'm sick. You're cheating on a vegetable. Caravan Pictures presents Sandra Bullock. These are your husband's things. Not my husband! Your fiance. Bill Pullman. She drives you so crazy, you don't know whether to hug her or just arm wrestle her. Peter Gallagher. He's awake. Your family's here, Peter. In a film about love at second sight. Who are you? While you were sleeping. Shouldn't have left the booth. Shouldn't have left the booth. Shouldn't have left the booth. While You Were Sleeping was written by Daniel G. Sullivan and Frederick Lebo and directed by John Turtletop. The film stars Sandra Bullock in her first starring vehicle after her breakout role in 1994's Speed. It also features Bill Pullman, who finally, finally, finally gets the girl. Oh, my goodness. After missing out on both singles and Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, there's no doctor-patient relationship. There's no odd allergies. He gets to go all the way, baby. That's it. Uh, you know, after after pushing aside his comatose <laughs> brother, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, at least the person that he <laughs> believes is his comatose brother's fiance. I mean, you know, that's that that that's not the case. He has no idea and yet. But but again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> the film also features Peter Gallagher, Peter Boyle, Jack Warden, Glynis Johns, and Michael Rispoli. That's Jackie April Sr. for you Sopranos fans. While You Were Sleeping tells the story of Lucy, played by Sandra Bullock, a token collector for Chicago's L Train, who leads a lonely life after the death of her father following a prolonged illness. Now, first off, Rob, this is a movie that really wants you to know it is set in Chicago. Oh, yeah. it This is... It, it's set in Chicago, and it will let you know as if it was made in the 70s by Italian filmmakers. Like, 
if there was a Chicago flag that they could have in offices, it would be in the corner of every single office. I definitely saw the Chicago flag at various yeah. points. Like I, yeah. I, I, I happen to know what the Chicago flag looked like and I saw it. Everything's right by Wrigley. Uh, <laughs> although I, I'll say I'm going to jump the gun. The one thing they fuck up is the hot dog cart on the street is a New York hot dog cart, not a fucking Chicago hot dog cart. Because there's no I tomato. I don't know what a Chicago hot, what's the difference? I know. Well, and the carts maybe are different, but like Chicago, you don't have a, a plain hot dog with mustard and ketchup. All you Midwest folks, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know you gotta what you're have, talking about. You need onions, you need tomatoes, You there's stuff on there. Uh, if you it's, have a good hot dog, yeah. you don't need all that junk. Oh, yeah, you do, my man. Oh, no, 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 Yes, no. you do. <laughs> Uh, it's worth pointing out, the original script was actually set in New York, uh, entitled Coma Guy, before it was changed to While You Were oh Sleeping. Oh my god, Coma Guy is the best Coma Guy's a great title, I love that! Yes! <laughs> Daily, Lucy fantasizes about the handsome man who she sees catching the train at her station every morning. And while she's barely spoken to him and has no real connection with him at all, at least until on a Christmas day, when muggers push him onto the tracks and she jumps down and pulls the unconscious stranger to safety. At the hospital, as she watches, as the man who she saved is being wheeled away, she says aloud to herself, I was going to marry him. This is then overheard by a Budinsky nurse who jumps to the conclusion that Lucy is the man's fiance. And, uh, and, and long before long, his family is told that Lucy is his heretofore unknown fiance. Rob, this movie is full of people overhearing random shit and then repeating it as fact. It's a game of telephone as a movie. Yeah, this is one we talked about earlier with when Harry Met Sally and Pretty Woman, you know, Pretty Woman, it's there's kind of the sheen of high concept. Mm -hmm. This is all sitcom high concept. Yes. This is if you were looking for a rom-com about real human emotion, just go to the next next exit please because this is not that. <laughs> <laughs> this is high, high concept, and you are going to have it in, like, every scene is going to be about misunderstandings and comas and being, <laughs> like, never being able to say, oh, wait, that's not true. Uh, yes. And then, you, and then you're Just a minute. Let me, let me correct deep. you on a certain point. No, yeah. no one ever says that. Um, no. and, and it's... You know, again, Lucy, the the the, the family, the, the Callahan family welcomes Lucy and with open arms, and she just does not ever stop to tell them, "Oh, hey, wait a minute, I'm not your 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 son's fiance." Yeah, and, and the reason the reason the family is so welcoming of her is because what they're estranged from. People. Yes, that's true. Even though they live in the same city, and so they really want to get back in his life, and they're not in his life because wait. No, no, they they never explain any of that. They just <laughs> no, none of that gets explained. No, none no. of that gets explained. Uh, what does get explained is why Lucy, uh, played by Sandra Bull, is such a lonely person. She she yes. moved, you know. She I guess she lost her mother very early. You know, she grew up, you know, with her father, and she was very close with her father. Her father got sick. They moved to Chicago, I believe, from Wisconsin in order for him to be treated at a better hospital. Um, and then she, that's when she took on the job, at, you know, at the uh, at the L train uh, to, to support them. And then he passed away. So she's she's a lonely girl in a lonely city. And I I like I mean, I think I buy that. And I, there's a, one of my one of the things I liked about that is a bit in the opening where she's talking about her memories with her father and we see it in flashback and it's heavily filtered. And she actually says in the narration, I don't remember it being this orange. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, great... And that's fairly early on where you're. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's a clever bit. I, I like that. Yeah. And, and you get, it, it doesn't go as far as something like scream, but you're definitely in the mid nineties meta reflective on the medium that you are in. Sure. So this one also has a lot of uh, movie talk, like some of our others yeah. in the past have, because uh, that's a very 90s thing. But nothing that goes, and I guess it opens with the voiceover, and that's where you get the, 
that one gag that you're talking about and it ends with the voiceover but that's all the voiceover it's not uh yeah and it it's never not like forget quite. paris where joey zaza is going to come in periodically yeah. <laughs> to remind you that joey zaza is telling a story yeah um although we have we ha- we do <laughs> we do have an italian-american stereotype in joe fusco jr played by michael rispoli uh the son of her landlord who is the most insane Italian American stereotype I I can even think of. This is a guy who says he can get tickets to the ice capades because he knows a guy. Yeah, and and frankly, it feels like this is the vestigial tale of moving from New York to Chicago. They already have this yeah. guy. Not that there aren't Italian Americans in Chicago, but it does feel more New York. They should have made him Greek if they'd wanted to go <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> That would have been great. Uh, that that would have been fantastic. It's it's a less obvious stereotype, though. You know, and truthfully, <laughs> I mean, this is this is a movie that that is all empty calories. Like, it's not. There's nothing kind of like. There's no weight to it. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I I was trying to think of what like the action movie equivalent of this is. Like, if yeah. if if when Harry met Sally is has has weight to it and is like a diehard. Is this like a Con Air or something like that? Is that the yeah, that's, is that that's the analogy? Close. Yeah, because as you say, even that train tracks when she's saving him. Yeah, the music on the soundtrack is so light and like jaunty and airy. It's not signaling that there's any tension or that anything bad's going to happen. It's Randy Newman's generic 90s comedy score. Like, that's yeah. just it. Like, it's it's like you don't even need a specific film. It's just Randy Newman's mid-90s comic score. And, you know, like, it fits any number of things. And I think this was the film, although we touched on it before, this series of any of the ones that we've done is the one where I'm like, Normally, the score in one of the original, the music in one of the the first couple movies becomes iconic enough that people start aping that as part of trying to copy the formula. Mm -hmm. And we've had a couple films that did kind of the jazz standard thing. Oh, sure. From when Harry Met Sally. Sleepless in Seattle, Forget Paris, both really do them. Yeah. But most of them musically do not care and they just literally will do their own thing whether it comes to how they do needle drops or the the score in this case yeah yeah it's it's interesting because this this trend is not not focused on the music in the same way no and i I will say we've talked uh, before about how some of these movies really are are dependent on the chemistry of of the lead actors well this movie is entirely (laughs) entirely resting on the likability of sandra bullock now that is considerable yeah. You know, like Sandra Bullock is incredibly likable. So that can carry a lot. But like this movie is really kind of just dumping it all on her shoulders to sort of just carry the load. And, and she does. Yeah. Even though y- y- the situations are just inherently kind of insane. Oh, it's madness. I, I kept imagining what this movie, how it would play if Joaquin Phoenix was the lead. <laughs> That would that would be and amazing. Just how different! I I would I'd pay real money for a while you were sleeping remake with Joaquin Phoenix. You know, gender swapped is fine. Well, I think you've got to go back to Coma Guy. Oh my god, Coma Guy, Coma Girl, Coma Girl, and he's you know, but like that's nightmarish. Yeah, <laughs> like it's creepy and weird and like I, you know, and and because there's things in this movie that if it wasn't charming Sandra Bullock, you'd be like. Lady, you're you're perpetrating a fraud. And, you know, coming out of When Harry Met Sally, you wouldn't think that this would become kind of a running theme. But coming out of Pretty Woman, it is. Yeah. And I think we've now gone long enough that there are quite a few films in the wake of When Harry Met Sally and Pretty Woman that when you look at what the leads do, it, on paper, you go, Oh my God, yeah. this is insane yes. and creepy. And how was this ever a hit movie with mainstream Americans? And it is all dependent upon just the tone of direction and really the performances. Yeah. And this this movie, and in some ways the next one, fall into that trend. Yeah, well, the next one, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but the next one's interesting because the next one is, is, the, is kind of the first of these to acknowledge... And to and to and to really explore that their protagonist is acting 
in an insane manner, but yes. not yet here, yeah. here we're just kind of no, going along no. with it. And, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the family just takes to, to, to Lucy. I mean, I can't blame them and I can't blame her to some degree. It's just, the whole thing is so strange. Like it's, you know, I mean, they, they, I guess they had been estranged from their son. They knew that he was seeing someone, I guess had met a, a woman by the name of Ashley Bartlett Bacon, which leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie when Peter Boyle says <laughs> she was pretty high and mighty for somebody named after breakfast meat. Yes. And, and, a good line. Oh yeah. And, and I, you know, I like the family because, you know, they have a good group of character actors you know, uh, you know, Peter Boyle is different. Jack Warden is great. I mean, you know, who else could be, you know, Jack Warden, who else could be, uh, you know, Kermit the Frog and Fozzie the Bear's uh, editor-in-chief from from The Great yes. Muppet Caper. My goodness. Although I will say there are some a couple of random bits of terrible acting in this movie that fascinate me how they happened in like an, a major Hollywood production. There's the doctor. There's one doctor who's just terrible. Like he's he's like pulling faces, trying to throw, you know, uh, Sandra Bullock out of the room with the guy. Then, then there's a colleague that, oh, that yeah. she runs into who has the line, I'm a lawyer. I carry a pencil. I do that. Who? Yeah, and that of course leads to the reason she can prove how she learns from this guy that he was in an accident while playing basketball. So later on, that leads to a scene where Lucy reveals that Peter has one testicle. That's right, one testicle, and the family checks, and that's how she proves like her 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 bona fide credentials is that you know she knew the guy had one ball because a conversation she happened to have in the near the elevator with a guy who was just ridiculous yeah uh and <laughs> because uh oh my goodness i mean it's it's just so weird uh but you know okay jack who's peter's brother yes is is very skeptical of lucy uh kind of right off the bat and always kind of checking on her. Yes, we should we should mention that they the the family that this happens on Christmas and Lucy's working because she's the only person who is willing to work on Christmas day. So the family has a belated uh Christmas uh you know celebration. What would be in my household would be known as faux Christmas where you have Christmas a couple days later and they invite Lucy over and that is the first time that she uh, she meets Jack who is who is Peter's brother played by uh, the the always a bridesmaid and only finally a bride, uh, Bill Pullman. Who, by the way, is climbing the ranks on our Get Me Another yes. actor board. Yes, he uh, hasn't reached now, Ernie Hudson level yet, but, you know, he's he's getting no, or, there. Uh, or Carolyn Monroe level well, yet either. No one reaches Carolyn you know. Monroe level. I mean. Yeah, I think she was in every other Star Wars film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And all the better for it. Yeah, so uh, Peter's younger brother, Jack, is is the salt-of-the-earth guy who's initially suspicious of this woman who appears out of nowhere. And basically, that makes him the only reasonable member of the family. I mean, he's the only guy who's not asking, he's, who's asking the right questions. Yeah, and I think it's because... Um... I have no idea why they just <laughs> no, kind of because the script demands it. Uh, I I mean, yeah, you know. And, but honestly, there's and there's like the the moment where she he he's like he goes to her like apartment and he encounters Joe Fusco Jr. It's it's there's all sort you know he thinks oh she's she's dating him and it it's all it, it's all a lot of oh I saw this or I heard this so there I therefore I assumed that this was true and I just took everything at face value in order to make the the, the story work that's it uh, there's a lot of people who fall down in this movie and I find it hysterical oh yes not main characters although sometimes that but just like random people like they'll show a random person on the street walking and they'll fall down and I gotta be honest it's funny as hell yeah both both of the movies today have a lot of physical comedy oh the, yeah well we'll get it like yeah. I said uh, the, the second one it's very That's, deliberate yes. and masterful uh, but oh, yeah. you know here it's uh eh. but are we are we gonna talk about the cat? Yeah, let's talk and, about the cat. Just, I think we we owe it to the people to talk about the cat. the cat. Yes. Yeah, um, because at one point at the hospital, because this is just like a string of, of I can't, could not believe it. <laughs> at the hospital, <laughs> they give Lucy Peters a box of his effects, his yes. personal effects, including a, a wallet and keys. Yep. And there's a bag with a can of cat food. 
at this point, she could be anybody, Rob. She could just be anybody. Oh, wait, she is. Yeah, (laughs) this might be the point where you would say, you don't even have to say, oh, I've been lying this whole time. You could say, oh, thank you, but I really think that should go to his family who are here also. But that's not what happens. Lucy has every opportunity to to sort of correct the record, but just she doesn't because she likes the family. Yeah. And, you know, then she discovers in going through his wallet and the box that there's a can of cat food. Yes. And this is the thing that makes her go, oh, no. (laughs) What have I done? There's a cat, a hungry cat. I instantly, there's a cat, a hungry cat. And what would you do in this situation? You could at this point give the box back to the family. Or. If there's any number of things you could do. But does she do any of, no. She goes to his his apartment to feed the cat. To feed the cat. And she's carrying this can of cat food around. Yes. (laughs) And calling out for the cat who's not coming. And uh, someone else is headed to this apartment as well. Yes. Someone who is suspicious. Of yes. Lucy. This is where, where she again encounters Jack uh, and the beginning of their romance. Uh, you know, their, their romance is predicated on a couple visits to his comatose brother's apartment. Uh, one, one where the cat incident happens. Uh, another one where they deliver a, a sofa. Um, where, you know, they, that, that's where they really fall for each other. Which I want to point out, his brother is in a coma. And and this woman is is believed to be his comatose brother's fiance. His brother's life is hanging by a thread. <laughs> like, l- listen. But it's not. In this movie, it isn't. But it's sh- like it's he's in yeah. a coma. Like, listen, this movie takes place in a little over like a week. Like he go, he falls on the tracks on Christmas Day. He wakes up on New Year's Eve, and in that brief span, nobody, nobody is behaving like their loved one just fell into a coma. If my wife was in a coma, I wouldn't leave the room for the first week. Like, they'd have to drag me out. Like, now maybe, God forbid, if you had a loved one who was in a coma for months or years, some normalcy, some routine might return to your life. I mean, at the very least, you might have to go back to work. But during the first week, everything stops. Everything stops. You don't just, you're not going to like... It's it's insane that, 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 that they go on with their lives as if nothing happened. Their son is in a coma. It's it's well, and forget going on with their lives <laughs> when they are all in the hospital around the comatose son. They really talk and behave as if they're waiting for a pie to come out of the oven. <laughs> it's like so casual. It's so casual and light. This this film, as you said, it is. It's the crystal Pepsi. Of of uh, rom coms, it it has a lot of things that could be very heavy, and it is it is telling you it is not heavy. Like let's just roll with some ridiculousness. And by the way, uh, to to pile onto this, <laughs> Lucy is pretending to be Peter's secret fiance that the family did not know about. Correct. What an outlandish thing! The only thing that could be more outlandish is if we find out via cutaway to Peter's answering machine, (laughs) that Peter actually did have a secret fiancé that the family did not know about. That is the aforementioned Ashley Bartlett Bacon. She's pretty high and mighty for someone named after breakfast meat. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And and Lucy, Lucy, it it gets downright conspiratorial. At one point, she's in in the room with her comatose not-fiancé, and she actually kind of like confesses to the deception to this comatose guy and the family friend Saul played by Jack Warden overhears her confessing this and at this point you know he he basically becomes party to this deception like oh I'll take care of it with the family but he never does like honestly at this point Lucy's best option and I'll say it is for Peter to never wake up (laughs) I know it's dark but honestly, it's true. Yeah, you, you think, oh, Saul overheard. He's going to tell them because he's a friend of the family. And and the explanation is they're so estranged from Peter. 
which I'm never going to tell you why, and they're never going to make up. It's just going <laughs> to, he's just going to wake up and pretend that none of this happened. They need the lie that you were going to marry their comatose son to make them feel better about maybe they can have him in their life again. It's insane. Uh, I'm like, that is, that's a, it's, that's it's a way to it's, go. It's an insane, it, it, this movie is bonkers. <laughs> you know, I it, mean, it we've is. watched some weird movies for this. We've watched movies, you know, like it, this is, this is like the star crash of our Harry Met Sally series. This is, this it, is it, like it Hercules, is. you know, this the is hu- the humanoid was more believable than this movie. <laughs> oh, the humanoid was downright humanoid. I mean, it was, it was, it was uh, people behaved in ways I kind of understood kind of. Um, like it's, but I, I will say that this, I enjoyed how bonkers it was. Like, oh yeah, was, no, I, 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 I didn't dislike I it. Look away. I, I, I yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, I, 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 it was still, it was still charming and it's, there are times when it felt, it felt shot. I think, you know, like a TV movie, like it had that, it had yes. that feel yes. to it. Like it didn't, it didn't have Which a, is a sort crazy, of crazy. Yeah. You know, because I, 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 you know, I full disclosure, I am a huge fan of the movie National Treasure, which uh, John Turtletop directed. You know, down the line. Can I can I confess something? I've never seen it. Oh no! I've never seen either of them. Oh my goodness! Oh crap! I, I will have to rectify that at some. point. I know, I know. That's gonna. I don't. I don't know how or why, but. <laughs> But he is he is a you know dynamic director and it's just uh, I mean this is obviously very different yeah. material to be covering and uh, the other thing is he is there are a lot of scenes where you have I don't know seven eight people to cover in a dialogue yeah. scene and, and let me tell you that is never fun to do absolutely eventually Jack wakes up and of course when when he wakes up he doesn't know who she is because she's nobody to him. But instead of kind of like it all coming out, it's like, uh, you know, they, you know, they chalk it up to amnesia. Lucy and Peter spend time together, even though he can't remember her at all. And it's, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, she's by this point, she's fallen in love with the brother. This goes back to something we, we discussed earlier in the series, the difference between external and internal obstacles. Uh-huh. And, you know, whereas the conflict in When Harry Met Sally is nearly entirely defined by internal obstacles, by by the characters' feelings, their hangups, their psychologies. Here, you know, Jack and Lucy are obviously right for each other. There's not a lot of question about that. So the movie depends on external obstacles to keep them apart. There's like a ridiculous bit where, where Jack comes to believe Lucy's pregnant after overhearing something and then taking it as fact. And it's, you know, there's a period in the, in the the second half of this movie, uh, honestly, before Peter wakes up where it just feels like, Oh, we're running in place because we need to have a feature length running time. Yeah. I mean, it's, and you're right. It it is all extremely external. The, the internal conflict just isn't there. The thing that's the most truthful Mm -hmm. in while you were sleeping is Jack's mid nineties Midwest coat that he wears? <laughs> I will tell you that that is spot on. Oh my goodness! I mean, and even again, there's a scene where they catch like the family catches Jack and Lucy just passing under the mistletoe at the house, and they, you know, they start encouraging them to kiss, and I'm like. That's the fiancé. As far as you know, that is the fiancé of your comatose son whose life is hanging by a thread, theoretically. On the lips. On the lips. No, get some tongue in there. Let's go. (laughs) It's more awkward than the moment in French Kiss when Luke and Kate kiss when she's asleep. Like, it's more awkward than that. And that's, like, that's, one of them is unconscious. It's, uh, it's, it's, anyway, Peter wakes up. Can't remember Lucy. Saul, who seems to have given up any pretense of truthfulness, convinces Peter to propose again. Yeah. And and they decide to have the wedding in immediately in the hospital chapel. Now, I I was like, three months is not enough time in Four Weddings and Funeral. Here, it's like three hours. Well, and, and this sequence of the movie gives us my favorite line from While You Were Sleeping. It took a coma to wake me up. My family loves you. I might as well love you. And that's from Peter <laughs> to Lucy. That's amazing. That's an amazing line. Yeah. Uh, that uh, it's, 
Well, and, and Peter is given this character arc where you kind of get the idea that he is like this big bad business guy and a yeah. yuppie douchebag or whatever, but he's in a coma. Yeah. So you only get all of that from what other people talk. And then he wakes up and he's so confused that he becomes nice. And that's his character arc. And it's it's so weird. Peter Gallagher is kind of perfectly cast as the handsome, empty guy. Like he's just. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah and and. It's so hard for me post OC to not see Sandy Cohen and and to not see the wisest, nicest man on the planet. Right. Uh, But I've seen the underneath. I've seen (laughs) Soderbergh movies. Sure. Like, I know he's not always that way. No, absolutely. And, And, you know, so we have this wedding. And then at the last minute, Lucy objects to her own wedding and confesses everything in front of the family just before Peter's actual significant other, the aforementioned Ashley Bartlett Bacon, arrives to object as well, which honestly feels like an afterthought because Lucy's already, you know, kind of torpedoed the whole thing herself. Although I will mention Ashley Bartlett Bacon shows up with her own boyfriend. Yeah. Like she's got her own man who looks like Tom Berenger's stunt double. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and then they it turns out that, you know, Peter does remember dating her, but they broke up a long ago. And so then her calling and saying, yes, I'll marry you is in response to some proposal from before they broke up or something. I it's all very squishy. Yeah, it's like me accepting a job I was offered in 1999 or something. Like it's yeah, which by the it, way it, I would like yeah. to do. Oh yeah, oh sure. No, if I could go back and do it all over again, you know. Oh my god, you know, I'd I'd have a legitimate career. Uh, <laughs> but of course, it's not the end because Lucy, back at work at the train station, finds an engagement ring slipped into the cup in front of her instead of a token. And what's interesting in this scene is that it's not just the Jack there to propose to Lucy. It's the whole family, except for Peter. Peter's gone. Peter vanishes into the night, never to be seen again. I don't I don't even think the family. Yeah, he's back in his high rise condo. They won't see him again. It's fine. It's like, yeah. No. Well, you know, that's I, I love that condo. I would I'd take that. That'd be fine. Um you know, in the final shot, we see Jack and Lucy on the back of a Chicago L train with a just married sign. And we're told in voiceover that Jack took Lucy to Florence for their honeymoon, fulfilling her dream of going there. Now, I guess the back of a Chicago L train is cheaper than sending Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman to Italy to get a shot of them in front of Il Duomo. Uh, but, you know, so they just they didn't have that in the budget. So they just put them on the back of the train. And I'm surprised they didn't have the whole family on the back of the train with them. Yeah, I'm surprised that, uh, you know, that they weren't eating deep dish pizza because yeah. Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> like, like. It's uh, While You Were Sleeping, brought to you by Pizzeria Uno or Pizzeria Due. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, again, it's 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 an empty cow. It's it's the first of these movies that I, I would just say is an empty calorie movie. Like there's no, there's nothing substantial to it. It's in effect, again, it's, it's the con air of, of nineties rom-coms. It's, it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous, just like con air. Um, and my wife loves them both. So, yeah. you know, I mean, that's, uh, there it is. And, and, um, but yeah, forget Paris. I had issues with, and I didn't think the characters necessarily, you know, what, where they landed. I don't think that worked, but it, it had at least, you know, it, it was going for more of a depth. It just I don't think it quite all worked, but it was going for it. Here, they're not even trying. Yeah, and you are, you know, as we're, you know, this is mid-cycle. The, you know, yeah. and the, you know, the next movie will be a little, a couple years later. And you really are starting to feel the getting further and further afield from uh, what came before. It always happens. It's uh, it is it is the inevitable. It is the inevitable cycle. Is that you know things uh, things things do you know. They start to drift, and that's why uh, that's the pattern that we find. Uh, but anyway, I mean, our second film today. I want I want to move on to our second film because I think our second film yes. has got some more has, has got a lot more meat to it. Um, our second film today involves a slightly more sinister deception uh, with Julia Roberts in 1997's My Best Friend's Wedding. Michael and Julianne have been best friends for years. The one constant thing in my life is that he'll always be there. But they were never more than that. Call me, four in the morning, whatever, we gotta talk. Until he popped the question. I called because I met someone. To someone else. Well. We're getting married. 
was in love with me every day for nine years. Me! <laughs> I can see why. Look, she has known him for what, like five seconds? I can't lose him, George. I'm a busy girl. I've got four days to break up a wedding and steal the bride's feather. Oh! <laughs> Julianne this and Julianne that. Michael and I were a wrong fit right from the start. He said that too. George, she's toast. The only fear she really has is you. So this means that I have four days to make you my new best friend and be my maid of honor. What? Why not? You're practically the best man anyway. I just asked myself, what would Lucy Ricardo do in this situation? Who's that guy? I told him, George, <laughs> if we're engaged, why well, be ashamed of it, right? There's something wrong. It's just a big surprise. We thought you were a lesbian. Ah! I know. We have to talk about George. You're jealous? Crazy jealous. Personally, I think Mr. Michael's marrying the wrong girl. Just tell him you love him. I, I, I realize this comes at a very inopportune time. Marry me. TriStar Pictures presents I'm the bad guy A story about finding the love of your life Do you really love him? And deciding Or is this just about winning? What to do about it I trusted you Just tell me what Why did you trust me? No, why did you pretend to be my friend? Julia Roberts oh. Dermot Mulroney And Cameron Diaz Lovely together. My best friend's wedding. Michael! That's our maid of honor. She's from New York. Oh. My best friend's wedding was written by Ronald Bass, who won the Oscar for his script for Rain Man, and directed by Australian PJ Hogan, who had a breakthrough hit with the 1994 film Muriel's Wedding. It stars Julia Roberts as Julianne Potter, a food critic who learns that her longtime best friend Michael is about to be married, and after coming to the conclusion that she's been in love with him all along, decides to break up the wedding. The film co-stars Dermot Mulroney, Cameron Diaz, and Rupert Everett, as well as featuring supporting roles Philip Bosco, M. Emmett Walsh, Rachel Griffiths, Carrie Preston, and Paul Giamatti Yes, for his second appearance in this series as a brief role as a bellman. And I had never seen this movie before this week. Uh, this was one I, I, I missed when it came out in uh, uh, in 97, despite the fact I worked for, in a movie theater that summer and saw almost everything. I missed this. And I really like this movie. This this movie is fascinating. And there is a lot to it. Oh, yeah. I, this movie, it, there's a lot to unpack. The, the first thing I will say is just as a general note. Is that the, and I'd mentioned it earlier, the physical comedy oh. in this movie is just amazing. It really is. Amazing. Uh, uh, this might be my favorite Julia Roberts performance. And 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 a lot of that, she has physical comedy stuff in this movie that is just fantastic. Like that is that is Lucille Ball level physical comedy. Yeah. Uh and and, and I have to mention, because this is she might have the best hair of any human being in a movie in this film. It's amazing. Yeah, it it is. It is pretty great. Anyway, so that's the first thing that struck me. And and it was the, the, yeah, she gives a great, great performance. The first thing I want to talk about is that Jules and Michael have an agreement that they will marry each other if they are not already married by the age of 28, which is on the horizon. Now, first off, Rob, 28? 28? I mean, 40 maybe? But 28 feels like you're still you're still a kid. I mean, and on top of that, Michael's fiance is 20 years old. She's still in college. Like like as a point of fact, like that that whether she's going to finish college is a plot point. But like and now listen, an 8-year difference is not a big issue if the people are 32 and 40 or, you know, 45 and 53. You know, that doesn't really matter, but I can't even imagine the notion of someone getting married before graduating college. Rob, she can't legally drink at her own wedding. <laughs> yes. What? 
Like that's and and, and again, it's just the, I, I think this age thing. There's a couple of things in this movie that are vestigial tales of an earlier era, and I think the ages appended to the characters are one of those things. Yeah, I could totally see that. And um, you know, it, what's weird is you you know, again, the movie doesn't make that much of an issue about the age itself. Some of the things like the will she finish college? Yes. You know, is she giving up her life for him? Th- those questions that'll come up kind of spring from the age, but it's not, it's never presented as she's too young for him or he's too old for her. No, no. And all of this would work though. If it was, he was 34 and she was 26, all of that same stuff would work. Yeah. You wouldn't have the college thing, but you could still have the same issues of, is she going to give up a job? Maybe she'd be grad school. Yeah. Or or a job. How is she going to change her life to suit her husband? Or is she going to have a life of her own? And it's just, that was one of the things that jumped out at me earlier. It was like 28. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the opening scene, not the, op- the opening credits are amazing and, you know, kind of this oh, yeah. like 50s, yeah. 60s pop era like idea of like romance. Yes. Um, that you never come back to, but it's stylish as hell. But yes, it is. That opening scene where you get a lot of this setup that we're talking about uh, between Jules and George, played by Rupert Everett, her editor. Where it's just, this scene is so fabulous where you get that she's like a feared food critic. Mm -hmm. You get that she's kind of like a powerful woman who is happy in her career, but perhaps alone. The way that she's talking about getting the call and he really needs to talk. And that as, uh, you know, as Rupert Everett's character is drawing these things out of her. And you're just getting to his final question where he's like, and she gives the story about, oh, you know, we used to date. And yeah. If we weren't married by 28, we'd marry each other. Classic setup. We've seen it before. Absolutely. And he just, you know, that question when he asks, how old is he? The look on her face. I mean, because so much of that is yeah. played in just close up of her telling the story. And it's it's all mesmerizing. I haven't even seen this bozo yet. <laughs> and I'm already <laughs> want her to get together with him. Like. Right. Which, you know, something that will be subverted uh, throughout this movie. Absolutely. And and a lot of this movie is about subverting. Like, this is such a fascinating film because it's really about subverting a lot of the tropes that we've been talking about. I mean, we've talked about how a number of romantic comedies, you know, they set you up for the, you know, at the beginning for this is the couple that we're going to be, you know, that we're going to see how they get together. And then it's the obstacles of how they get together. They have these, you know, there's a predetermined couple and then you have obstacles. Uh, Here, our romantic comedy sensibilities tell us that our predetermined couple is Jules and Michael and that Kimmy is the obstacle, but that's not it. It's Jules who is the obstacle to Kimmy and Michael. This is a movie about a villain realizing they are a villain. And it's fascinating. It's it's uh, it's like a heist movie where the protagonist thinks he's Danny Ocean, but at the end realizes he's actually Hans Gruber. There you go. It's, uh, and it really does, what's interesting is, to a point, the, you're on board with her and her motivation. Yes. With Jules. Is, but, you know, this is a movie where, uh, and I didn't quite time it exactly, but this movie is very bifurcated, I feel. Mm-hmm. Where in the, the opening setup leading in up like roughly the first half of the movie, you're at least I, I'm kind of on board with her, like at least wanting to be with uh, what Michael. Michael. And... You know, in the beginning, she doesn't do anything that's super hardcore yet because it's a progression that she's going to go through. Right. And the first half, therefore, feels it's super high concept, you could say. But the first half feels a little more, a little closer to naturalistic. Right. You know. Because each of her, each of her machinations gets increases in intensity. So like the first one, you know, and I love this scene. My goodness. The scene where the karaoke scene. Yeah. Where she knows that, that Kimmy doesn't like karaoke. And I should mention that upon meeting Jules, Kimmy instantly asks her to be her maid of honor uh, because the original Maid of Honor had to drop out due to injury, which puts Jules in a perfect position to sort of bring the whole thing down. Yeah. And that scene where she meets Kimmy, what I love, uh, talk about more subversion, that uh, Jules 
and Michael see each other at the airport because yep. she's coming in for the wedding. And they run to each other in a fucking airport. Yes! but Which would be the end of some rom-coms where you've come together. Absolutely. Except in this one, they then subvert it by instantly you get the the fiance, Kimmy coming in, played by Cameron Diaz. Yeah. And it's, you know, you could just see like, the hatred on Jules's face. Well, first of all, let's talk that the casting of Cameron Diaz as Kimmy is so perfect because you never, yes. you're not going to fall into that thing where you say, oh, well, how could he possibly fall for anybody else but Julia Roberts? Because, you know, it's Julia Roberts and she's got amazing hair. And, uh, but here you, you kind of put someone of equal weight a, you know, on the opposite ends of the scale. So it's not like, oh, well, it's a foregone conclusion. You have, and and it's oh, it's really interesting. They could have, there's so many things this movie could have done that would have been the easy road out. And in every time it takes the other way. So like it could have made Kimmy completely unlikable, but it does the opposite. It makes Kimmy absolutely adorable and it's like well well okay sure and you know it's it it, it does a thing where you know it it could make michael it could have something where oh M- michael and jules don't really feel like they have any chemistry but they do it because it's not as simple as just oh hey who's the right person like there's their choices to be made. Yeah. And by making Kimmy so likable and, you know, and there's this real kind of just like super positive, yeah. like innocence, not necessarily naivete. And they, they play against that later. Yes. For Kimmy, where she, she perhaps knew and was reading into more than, than initially it's led on. Yes. But, but there is this kind of like positive innocence, I would say, right. Innocence in how she's going to act. Maybe not necessarily, in what she believes about the world. And so in that first half, Jules is kind of, you know, put on her back feet by that or on her heels by it. And so she's doing small things like, Oh, is there a a division here? Are they, it's almost like she's probing. Are they actually a good fit? Are they actually a real couple? Would a little, would a little nudge like cause this house of cards to fall? And, and she's kind of hoping, like, they can't be a good match. Right. Uh, you know, she is too young. Uh, she come, She's too rich. She comes from a different world. Than her, her father owns the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, and he's a beat reporter for baseball and loves, yes. you know, being on the road and, you know, dirty motels, whatever, you, you know. There is a little setup, while it's not personality-wise, where you go, in the beginning, well, maybe they aren't a good match, right? Maybe right. Michael and Kimmy shouldn't be together. And that will, and, and, and theoretically could be the thing you discover over the course of the movie, but that's not this movie. No. That's what's so great about it. Um, there's, a, there's a scene early where one of one of her first machinations is like, you know, one of Jules's first machinations is to take everybody to a karaoke bar, knowing that she knows that Kimmy doesn't like it or isn't comfortable with karaoke, um, but she brings them there anyway, you know, she's a little duplicitous about it. And you have this scene where she, you know, she kind of pushes Kimmy into singing, knowing that she's going to be bad in an effort to embarrass her. And sure enough, Kimmy is terrible. She's terrible at singing, but her sheer determination and spirit actually end up winning over the hostile bar crowd like she's Rocky Balboa in a stadium full of Russians. It's fantastic. Totally. And I will say one of also one of the most truthful things in this movie is a man who spent a lot of time in karaoke bars. (laughs) I've seen this happen many a night where someone who doesn't necessarily have the best pipes in their throat, but they sell it. Yeah. And when they start selling it, the crowd loves it. Like I, I've seen this happen. I was so delighted when it started to turn in the scene itself. And again, uh, Julia Roberts in a lot of movies doesn't get to do reaction shots. Oh, she's got great ones in this movie. She's oh my often goodness! Driving the action. Oh. And in this scene, as you see, like, you know, Michael is, like, being delighted by the crowd and, like, Kimmy's, like, getting excited that, like, hey, they're into me because, like, someone heckles her in the beginning. Yep. But to see Julia Roberts's face and, and, like, and hiding it, 
hiding how kind of ticked off she is that it's now turned into a moment that's made Michael like Kimmy even more. Better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's, it's like so fantastic and, and funny. Yeah. Like funny as hell. And then, and she has other machinations too, where she's trying to sow discord, you know, about, well, is, is Kimmy going to leave college? Is, is Kimmy's father, again, who I said owns the Chicago White Sox, going to, you know, offer Michael a job? Take that job, Michael. Take the job at, with the Chicago White Sox, man. Just trust me, when you're 28, you don't know. Someone offers you steady employment like that, take it. Just take it. <laughs> I'll take it. You know, and and you get to be married to Cameron Diaz and and have a job where you're, you're the boss's son-in-law, dude. Take that deal. Jules, for her part, asks her handsome and gay friend George, played by Rupert Everett, who is amazing in this movie. Yes, he steal he steals every scene. Oh, he in. does. He steals really it. does. To fly out to Chicago to help her, and he poses as her fiance in order to induce jealousy in Michael. And his whole act, like overdoing. The, the 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 straight fiance thing is so good because George knows that what Jules is doing is wrong and he takes every opportunity to needle her about it being like just tell him the truth and when she doesn't follow his advice he lays it on so thick and it's so good and we get another kind of big singing sequence yes yes i want to talk about that because it's it first of all i want to mention this is not a musical but it almost is yeah because there's a lot of music in this movie and it's it's it, there are some fantastic numbers now pj hogan's previous film muriel's wedding was similar in that it was driven by abba abba the abba songs mm-hmm. and the protagonist's love of abba so it's uh, and that was the, that was a movie tony collette and rachel griffith are the two main people in that rachel griffith is also in this movie uh that was the movie that sort of started tony collette's career like you know she kind of blew up after that and here you have what might be the most memorable scene in the movie where it's it's at a pre-wedding lunch where George tells this story about a meeting of how he met Jules in an insane asylum. <laughs> you know, he, she wasn't an inmate there, but he met her there. And George starts singing Dion Warwick's I Say a Little Prayer, written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. And it starts out with just George, but it goes on more and more. And as it goes on, the rest of the restaurant joins in and it's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it really is. And it, it's one of those things where, you know, as written, it's it's a great idea. But to pull this off, it's magic. It's movie magic. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, this scene wouldn't. But work. it absolutely it so does. It kills. Oh, it kills. It kills. And it's I want to mention a couple of details about this because they are hysterical. Uh, the seafood restaurant that they are eating at is called Barry the Kudas <laughs> is the name of the restaurant. And it's hysterical because by the end, you have waiters who are wearing lobster claws. And in the back, you see the claws swaying in the back as the as they're sailing along the scene. It is amazing it's just it's incredible and there are a few uh you know meals yeah and restaurants are also a big through line in this as there are in wedding weekends that happens yeah yeah you know and uh i i think it might have been a little earlier but just to uh, there was one thing that i really loved and it was after i think jules started in on with kimmy about the Oh, have Michael do the PR thing for your dad's company. Oh, yeah, yeah. Knowing that Michael will hate it. Yes. But after she sets this up, then she's going to meet Michael and Kimmy for dinner. And there's this amazing shot as she's walking in, as Jules is walking in. And Michael and Kimmy's table is in the middle of this restaurant that has an open air kitchen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Behind them. And as she's walking up and Michael stands up to greet her, a giant fireball like hellfire comes up over Michael's shoulder, uh, you know, as they're cooking whatever behind them. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you don't need to be subtle. Oh, it's amazing. It's like so it's great. pitch perfect. It is fantastic. Oh, I got with George. I love there's a line where he's talking. <laughs> he describes him and Jules. Cause again, he's still going with the, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the fallacy that they're engaged. And he says, yeah, we're just like Doris Day and Rock Hudson. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. 
Amazing. Uh, and, and Jules has numerous opportunities to tell the truth. And George encourages her to do so, but she doesn't. And and then, you know, as the movie goes on, her schemes get more elaborate, going so far as to some light cybercrime when she falsifies an email from Kimmy's father to Michael's boss telling him to fire Michael. And while she declines to send it, she doesn't click send, it gets sent, mistakenly goes out anyway, which I, I got to say, 90s computer stuff in movies is always funny because you look at it and say, well, that's not how email works. That's not how email works at all. <laughs> no, but Chris, who amongst us hasn't committed a little light wire fraud for love? Oh, seriously. I mean, you know, you know, wire fraud, it's par for the course these days. But I, but it was I was happy uh, and nostalgic to see that big chunky black MacBook, yeah. uh, the or PowerBook, <laughs> yeah, excuse PowerBook, me, PowerBook, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah there's there, the computer elements. It's it's a little dated. The other the uh, that and the casual indoor smoking are the elements most date that date this movie because like the smoking here feels more dated than a movie from like the forties. Because this is so close to our world where you don't see that anymore, that those elements stand out. So it's it's weirder to see Julia Roberts light a cigarette than it is Humphrey Bogart. And and she and her character does smoke in this movie. It, like a couple years after this movie, the state of California becomes the first state to go complete to completely ban smoking indoors. Yeah, and, and movies stop having people casually smoke. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing, you know, if you're doing a period, if you're doing Mad Men or you're doing like, you know, a good night and good luck, obviously that's an integral part because of the, the time and place. But but sort of the casualness goes out of it because no one wants to be seen as promoting the tobacco industry and, and frankly, rightly so. So, you know, because they're terrible. The email scheme almost works, and when Michael is fired. Is he actually fired, or does his boss just send him the email and say, I want you to know what kind of family... Oh, yeah, that's... You're right. You're right. He doesn't actually get fired. I take that. I, I, I take that, but he doesn't actually get fired. But but he finds out that the email went out, which was enough. That, that does the job. And, you know, so he gets angry... He calls Kimmy, he calls off the wedding, and Jules's plan seems to have worked. Except the next morning, when Jules shows up at the at the venue, neither Michael nor Kimmy have told anybody that the wedding's off. And it's just, it's this fascinating moment uh, where Jules finally confesses to Michael that she loves him and she kisses him. And of course, Kimmy sees it and she just runs. She just books it. <laughs> and, uh, and and we have a chase. We have the, you know, it's almost the reversal of the dramatic run. Oh, yeah. Usually the dramatic third act run is is to somebody. Here, it's running away and following. Kimmy is running away, and then Michael is chasing after her, and Jules is chasing after him in a catering truck. And while she's on, you know, she's driving, she's on the phone with George. He asks her if Michael kissed her back. When she kissed him and she realizes that he didn't. George says to her, he tells her no one's chasing her and she's not the one. And she comes to realize it. And she has that moment where she says, I'm the bad guy. And it's as great of a third act twist. It's fantastic. Like it's and 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 now she she's trying to catch them because she realizes she has done something terrible and wants to try to repair it. And, and I particularly like this moment. Um, not only is it just unusual in and of itself, but you know, it's, it's one of, oftentimes this doesn't work, but this is one of the most satisfying. The audience is ahead of the main character moments. Yeah. I think that you will ever see. Absolutely. You, you know, because it is having more information and having the outside perspective actually just, you're waiting for maybe not this because frankly, I was not, I mean, I know it's a Julia Roberts romantic comedy from the nineties, but I was not so sure she was ever going to get here that Jules was ever going to, you know, really recognize how far off she'd gone. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And she did it all while not necessarily having deep dish pizza <laughs> on the river in the middle of Lake Michigan. Well, yeah, but but admittedly, she does catch up to Kimmy. She, she catches up to Michael and then eventually finds Kimmy at the bathroom of Kaminsky Park. 
So that there, there you have a Chicago location. The the interchange that they have, what happens there uh, is just fantastic. Where where you know she oh, yeah. apologizes, and, but Kimmy sort of steps up and is like, "No, I'm not going to let you do that." It's great. Kimmy, Kimmy, I know you're in here. The guard saw you come in. Just leave me alone, you bitch. Kimmy. the hell do you think you are? Cat five! You came here pretending to be my friend, and I made you my maid of honor! Who asked you to do that? You knew me, what, eight minutes? Michael trusted you, so I trusted you. You wanted to keep me close. You didn't trust me for a second. I was right! Well, of course you were right, but that's not my fault. You kissed him! At my parents' house! On my wedding day! Tramp. Shut up! Now, I love this man, and there is no way that I'm going to give him up to some two-faced, big-haired, <laughs> food critic. <laughs> all right, all right. I kissed him. I tried to steal him. I lost. He doesn't love me. He loves you. This movie is is terrific. And then at the end you get you get sort of the tag at the end where she does in fact serve as as the maid of honor and gives a wonderful speech, you know, basically sending them off to their life together and it's it's great. It's great. So, in that they do try and give you a warm and fuzzy feeling about about Jules. After all of that, she's kind of alone at the wedding. Yes. Which could be, you know, a little bittersweet, but they kind of, they don't leave it bittersweet. They just want it to be sweet. Well, she's learned something and, you know, yeah. that's, it's all about the learning. And you, you get a reprise uh, because what George is at the wedding. Yes. And he, inter- you know, he's calling her and it, there's like she a- thinks he's gone back to New York. Yeah. He calls her on the phone yeah. and, you know, he approaches her. There may not be love. There may not be sex, but there will be dancing and it's uh, you know so he she gets to she has someone to dance with at the wedding it's great yeah yeah. a a life will go on moment for her yes it is it's a life and and there was another ending originally shot i want to i want to mention this because it's uh in, in the ending originally shot, George is not at the, the wedding. He's just on the phone and she's talking to him. She hangs and she meets another guy at the wedding who uh, is played by Aiden from, from Sex in the City. John Corbett is the is the actor. Oh, okay. Who then was, was also at uh, my big fat Greek wedding a few years later. And and so she meets a guy. I, I like this more because I like that the arc of her was to become, you know, was to sort of have a, a moment of self-understanding. It wasn't that she'd go to a wedding and find a dude. It, it was that she she would come to learn something about herself. And that's hopefully will make her a better person, uh, you know, in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, I that probably, uh, as much as I love John Corbett, <laughs> I probably, uh, probably like this ending better, just at least even in... Uh, on paper. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, this was a terrific, it really is a, is a great movie. You know, as we're, as we're rounding the horn uh, of, uh, you know, heading into the final uh, next week will be our, our last get me another when Harry met Sally episode. This is a great one sort of, uh, you know, almost as we go into that final, the final chapter, because it really is subverting expectations and it does it so well. Absolutely. You know, setting, setting the table for what's to come. Yes. Yes, indeed. Please come back next week as we wrap up our Get Me Another When Harry Met Sally series as we're going to look at three romantic comedies from the late 90s with The Wedding Singer, You've Got Mail, and Notting Hill. So we have we have another we have another uh, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. We have another Hugh Grant and Richard Curtis joint, but uh, with Julia Roberts this time. So it's all going to kind of coalesce in uh, in next week's episode and uh, you know we hope to see you there again. As always, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends, tell your enemies, 
uh, or just download the show for a loved one who's in a coma. Because if you tell them, they probably won't hear. But if you just download it onto their, their iPhone, that will be great. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. I run for the bus, dear. While riding, I think of us, dear. I'll say a little prep for you. At work, I just take time. And all through my coffee break time, I say a little prep for you. Forever and ever, you stay in my heart, and I will love you forever and ever. We never were part of how I love you together. Forever, that's how it must be. I'm in love with you. Answer his prayer now, baby. Answer my prayer, baby. Answer his prayer. Say you love me too.